All right, Grace Bible Church. Uh, I have been asked by multiple people <clears throat> about this uh, final equipping hour class. The audio was lost, and so we're not exactly sure uh, what happened to that. But this uh, last class was the culmination of the Doxological Counseling series. And uh, I wanted to make sure that I re-recorded that lesson because this was intended to put a bow around the last instruction uh, of that series. So six classes on how to counsel each other and help one another become better worshipers of God. And in this sixth lesson, uh, part two of what I was calling sanctification sincerity is about heart shepherding as worship. Heart shepherding as worship. That's a term that we use often here at GBC. And so I want to talk about how to shepherd our own hearts and help shepherd the hearts of others and help others shepherd their own hearts toward better worship of God. So that's what this last, the sixth class is about. And I wanted to re-record this so that this is a, a resource for our church to have, uh, Lord willing, for a long time to come. On the website, if you look under the Equipping Our resource tab, you will see on October 20th, this last class is is listed for the doxological counseling series and they have recommended resources on that recommended uh, resources document i listed three categories of book books you have a counseling section that is just a lot of these are introductory counseling books uh, some by jay adams john MacArthur, and the tmu counseling department and then a couple others that I think are just helpful resources, basic to biblical counseling. Another section on theology proper that will reinforce what you've been hearing if you've heard the previous five classes in this series on how we should be thinking about God and his attributes and his greatness. Uh, some of those are easier resources for readers to grab a hold of, the most difficult one probably being Jonathan Edwards' The End for Which God Created the World. But if you're up for a challenging read, I can guarantee you that it'd be worth the effort. And then the final category on sanctification, there are 13 books in that category, and they all really deal with uh, how to become sanctified, some of them dealing with how to think about sin, how to think about holiness, how to think about the believer's ongoing struggle with indwelling sin. And so all of those resources uh, we've tried to make sure are available at our book table. And those that you see with an asterisk on this document are ones that are also available for a free PDF and the only one that's not available at the book table is Stephen Charnock's Existence and Attributes of God that uh, you'll have to get on Kindle or some other way 
it's a, a pretty dense book and uh, when we're just not gonna not gonna carry it at the book table it's uh, a fifty dollar book so if you want help uh, finding a, a good copy of that Baker uh, publishes a, a good single volume and the banner of truth also has a multi-volume set that's that's really nice so that's the uh, recommended resource document. The worksheet for this specific lesson is also downloadable online, the PDF of, of this outline, which I will just be working through as I teach the material now, just working through the PDF that's available online. And so we'll just start with the first point on, on that outline, which is some foundational considerations for heart shepherding. So as we're, we're talking about how the glory of God ought to impact our view of counseling, really where this culminates is if God is all glorious, all great, as scripture describes him, then how do I get my heart eventually? Where this goes is how do I get my heart to respond in a way that is in keeping with the description that I get in scripture of God's greatness. No glory we talked about can be added or taken away to God himself. He is already inherently glorious. He has always been as glorious as he ever will be before anything was ever even created. And so as a creature made by God, who has the unique obligation and privilege of responding to his glorious nature, how do I get my life and my heart to do that? How do I get my life, my heart, to respond rightly to the great God that God has revealed himself to be? And essentially, we call that process of, of striving for that at the heart level at Grace Bible Church, we call that heart shepherding, shepherding your heart. And so under this first outline point, foundational considerations for heart shepherding, I've got a few things for us uh, to consider. And first, the definition. Um, this is my shot at a definition, a way of thinking about heart shepherding defined. Heart shepherding is the practice of causing my thoughts, Attitudes, actions, words, will, emotions, affections, and or desires, all of those functions of the heart. Heart shepherding is the practice of causing those things to submit to the truth of God's word. That is, in a nutshell, what it means to shepherd the heart. It is the practice of causing all of those functions of my heart, my thoughts, attitudes, actions, words, will, emotions, affections, and desires to submit to the truth of God's word. All of it. That's what heart shepherding is. Now, a clarification. Heart shepherding is not reading the Bible. Heart shepherding is not equivalent to reading the Bible, to praying, to practicing any other spiritual disciplines, to attending Sunday services, or serving the church and others, those things are not equivalent with heart shepherding. 
learning about heart shepherding and discussing heart shepherding is also not the same as actually shepherding the heart. Jacob Hantler mentioned this in a sermon that he preached years ago on Proverbs 4.23, also available on our website. But he mentioned that you're not shepherding your heart until you're shepherding your heart. Reading the Bible, practicing spiritual disciplines, putting myself in a position, doing things that are helpful to bringing my heart to submit to God's word, those things are not the same as shepherding your heart. For example, you could read your Bible and not be shepherding your heart. Right, You could be reading your Bible and not bringing your heart to submit to what it actually says. The Pharisees did that. Just because you're reading your Bible does not mean you're shepherding your heart. Uh, Just because you're memorizing scripture does not mean you're shepherding your heart. Just because you're praying does not mean you're causing all of the functions of your heart to be in submission to God and what he said. Now, those things are indispensable to shepherding your heart. We must read our Bibles. We must pray. We must serve. We must attend corporate gatherings and be involved in body life and serving one another in order to shepherd our hearts effectively. Those things are indispensable and no one who's forsaking the means of submission by which God causes his people to grow and be sanctified No one who's forsaking those things can shepherd their hearts effectively. But the point is, just because you're doing those things does not mean your life is rightly ordered and in submission to God or in submission to his word. And so we want to just clarify up front that shepherding your heart is shepherding your heart. Bringing your heart into submission to God is heart shepherding, not the form or doing those things that are necessary to then shepherding your heart. And so uh, I think that what Thomas Brooks says in Precious Remedies is helpful. He says, true grace makes a man most careful and most fearful of his own heart. It makes him most studious about his own heart informing that, examining that, and watching over that, the heart. Uh, So paying close attention to the heart and causing it to be in submission to God, to what God says is true, is really the only thing that heart shepherding is. And so the goal, as we think about heart shepherding, what's the point of bringing my heart and all of its faculties into submission to what God has said is true, the goal is worship. And that's what we've been talking about. Uh, the, the goal is doxology, to respond in worship, praise, and adoration to God. The purpose of heart shepherding is doxological, the praise of God. And so really we worship God when we respond rightly to whatever he said in his word. Whatever he said about himself, whatever he said is true about man, whatever he said is true about anything, when we respond rightly to that truth, then we are shepherding our hearts. Then we are worshiping. And so this lesson, this very class, 
is about doing that as a means of worship. The very act of shepherding your heart, the goal is worship. So as we seek to shepherd our hearts, we should be aiming to worship God. And the reason we should be seeking to shepherd our hearts effectively is all for the glory of God. That is ascribing ultimate worth and power and wisdom and honor to him. That's the goal of shepherding the heart. And as we strive to shepherd our hearts well, that very striving ought to be for us worship. And that is the ultimate end. Anybody who seeks to shepherd their heart, as we've already said before uh, in past classes, anybody who's striving after Christ likeness, striving after obedience to God for some other end ultimately, is not worshiping God. <laughs> there are there are plenty good reasons to obey, and, and God gives us uh, many good reasons to obey. I'll give you one example from Hebrews 13. As the writer talks about reasons why the flock ought to submit to elders, he says this in verse 17 of Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to them. And then he gives multiple reasons. For they keep watch over your soul as those who will give an account. And then he says, let them do this with joy and not grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So a reason to obey your leaders is as simple as it wouldn't even be beneficial for you to make this a grief for them. That's one reason to obey your leaders and submit to them and to let them do it joyfully. But that's not the ultimate reason. Uh, the reason you should submit to your leaders and, and do everything, as we talked about, the goal, the reason God has created everything is for his own glory. And so heart shepherding is no different. The ultimate goal of heart shepherding is the glory of God. It's worship. Stephen Charnock says this in his uh, Existence and Attributes book, a spiritual worshiper performs not worship for some hopes of carnal advantage. He uses ordinances as means to bring God and his soul together, to be more fitted to honor God in the world in his particular place. Jesus, uh, really this echoes Jesus' own words in John 14, verse 23, as he talks about the ultimate goal of worship the ultimate benefit and blessing of obeying God. In John 14, 23, he says this, and Jesus an answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. The reward for obedience, the ultimate blessing for obedience is greater fellowship with God. And so that's what we should be striving for as we, seek to shepherd our hearts ultimately because we want to glorify God, greater fellowship with God, to know him is the reason that we seek to obey him. Now, the the final um, under point 4B, under this first uh, point in the outline, 
is is now the question. We talked about a, a definition for heart shepherding, a clarification about heart shepherding, the intention of heart shepherding, and now the question uh, that that'll really direct the rest of our our time in this class. How do I actually accomplish that on the heart level? How do I change with God's word by the power of God's spirit for ultimately the glory of God? Plenty times um, I've been at Grace Bible Church for over 11 years now and plenty times I have heard in small the small group setting someone be able to rightly identify a sin uh humbly confess a sin and even ask for prayer about a specific sin that they see in their lives. But when asked, okay, what are you doing about this? What's your plan now to uproot this sin in your life, to change on the heart level for the glory of God and experience uh, a change of life so that now you obey God What's your plan to accomplish that? And there's really no plan. <laughs> there's there's not a clarity at times in our minds about how do I resolve this sin and uproot this sin in my life and change thoroughly, truly, sincerely at the heart level to experience a change of life for the glory of God. And that's what we want to talk about then. Um, how do I do that on the heart level? We said last last time in the fifth lesson that worshipful, God-honoring change takes place when faith is the primary means of change. Faith must be the primary means of change if God is to receive glory from us as we are conformed into Christ's likeness. And so heart shepherding, really, at the root of it, it's about believing God, believing what God has said is true in his word. Even down, we said, to a specific passage, your motivation and instruction for changing, even how to think about the area of life you need to change, ought to come down really to a specific passage, a specific truth that God has communicated about that area of life, about that sin, about that area of righteousness that we need to put on. It ought to come down to the very words that God has spoken to us. And so change, what it means to have faith uh, for the sake of heart shepherding, and, and shepherding our heart toward change in a given area is to believe God. The one, one term that scripture uses often in the New Testament to describe this means of change when we believe God for the sake of change is renewing the mind. <laughs> mind renewal is discussed throughout scripture, particularly in the New Testament, the Christian has been radically transformed in conversion by God. He's been rescued from the penalty and the power of sin in his life. And so now he can put off ungodliness and put on righteousness. And the way that that is accomplished is through mind renewal. 
Paul discusses this in Romans chapter 12, uh, famously so, when he says after or at this turning point in Romans from the, the doctrine of the Christian life, the doctrine of the gospel to now how to live that out. He, he dives into that in a much more thorough way than he has up to this point in the letter. And in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God that he's just finished detailing, to do something, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is, here's what we've been talking about, your spiritual service of worship. How do I worship God as one who has been a recipient of his mercy in the gospel? Here's how. Do not be conformed and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. Transformation that is worship is accomplished in the Christian's life by mind renewal, by mind renewal. And that's what we said. Faith is the primary means by which the Christian is transformed into Christ's likeness. What that means is at the heart level, where does belief come from? What believes? What part of you, if we could call it that, what aspect of the, the human makeup believes things, trusts things, knows things, thinks things? Well, that's the heart, the inner self, the mind. The mind has thoughts, the, the heart, the inner self, the immaterial part of us, if you will, has thoughts, believes things, holds convictions, uh, assumes things to be true. When we bring that immaterial self, the heart, into subjection to God's words, when we compel our minds to believe what God has said is true and to think God's thoughts after what God has said in his word is true, that is us renewing our minds. And that doesn't just happen when you realize something is true in a sermon or sit down in the morning over a cup of coffee and read something that's true in your Bible. But when you get up and finish that cup of coffee and close your Bible that morning and you've just finished reading uh, a phenomenal passage on forgiveness and Ephesians 4 and 5 or in Colossians 3 or in Matthew 18 about how we ought to respond when offended, right? Forgiving from the heart, Matthew 18 talks about. Heart shepherding happens when you've read that and then when you're offended, you actually bring your thoughts into submission to what God has said is true. For example, if, if you were to read Matthew 18, if you've ever read that before, or if you know the truth that Matthew 18 communicates, that you consider yourself the greatest sinner, 
your sin is more prominent in your mind than the sin of another human being. Your sin to God is greater in your mind than the sin of another human being who has offended you. Then the next time you're offended, you treat it as such. And as Colossians 3 calls us, we forgive as the Lord has forgiven us fully, thoroughly, in a way that does not hold the offender accountable for the offense, right? The Bible reading, if you will, at the at the beginning of the day or, or at what, whatever point we have recognized what God has said is true, then must transfer to us shepherding our heart in the moment to bring our thoughts and our conduct in our lives into submission to what God has said. That is when heart shepherding has happened, when we're actually doing that in the moment of testing. And so this, to understand that mind, the renewing of the mind is the means by which believing God, faith is the means by which we're sanctified. That's not a hard concept, right? We get that. We should, uh, at least. We should, it should be easy for us to understand, yeah, when I believe God in the moment and bring my life in conformity with what he says, to everything he's commanded, to everything he's implied by what he has said is true, that's hard shepherding. And that's not a hard concept to grasp. The difficulty, though, is in actually doing it. In concept, in abstract, is not difficult to understand. That's clear. The path to sanctification is clear from God's word. Actually doing it is the hard part. That's all out war. But that's where the fight takes place is in in heart shepherding is in actually in those moments shepherding our hearts. And so what I want to do now is give us as as people who must shepherd our own hearts. Right. We must counsel our own hearts to believe and obey God and we must help one another. As the church, it is the, the duty and the privilege of the church's members to instruct the church's members, to counsel and help the church's members in the regular problems that people people deal with in life. And so I want to give us some uh, now formidable categories for hard shepherding, some formidable categories for hard shepherding. Uh these are not, I'm going to give us four, but these are not everything that you need to know for counseling. Uh, every truth that you need to bring to bear in your own heart and life and on the hearts and lives of other people who you have the opportunity to counsel will not fit nice and neatly into these four categories that I'm about to discuss. But they're formidable, I think, in the sense that they do cover a wide spectrum of what scripture talks about. And so in counseling, if you can go into a counseling opportunity with these four categories in your mind, um, you'll at least have a uh, some sort of path to walk on, if you will. Uh, sometimes in counseling, when I've had less than 
adequate time to prepare for a, a meeting that's come up, then I'll remember these four categories to think, okay, I don't know exactly what I'm stepping into maybe or exactly what truth this person will need to hear from me. But let me at least give myself four categories to kind of uh, circle initially in my thinking and so that as maybe I start thinking about counsel that fits into these categories, uh, then maybe that'll give me a, a guide, a path to move forward in counseling, and then I can branch out from there. And so here are four categories. A great God, a good gospel, a godly grief, and a glorious goal. A great God, a good gospel, a godly grief, and a glorious goal. And hopefully the alliteration helps you, your memory. That's the, the goal there. But uh, really these these just deal with God, the gospel, repentance, and God's glory being the, uh, the aim of, of all things. Like I mentioned, these aren't exhaustive categories, okay? Um, we, we talked about in a former lesson that counseling is, is as, as com complex, can be as complex as the human heart. Proverbs 20 verse 5 says that. The purpose in a man's heart is deep waters, but a man of understanding will draw it out. And so we can't think that there's a formula for counseling, that when we step in, if I just follow these four steps or these 20 steps, whatever you got, uh, then I'm, I'm equipped to counsel. And that's all I need is these steps and just follow it by the book. It just doesn't work that way. People are dynamic and the human heart is deep waters. And so it just takes God's wisdom, all 66 books that he has graciously given to us to sort through what we need and and what another person might need in any individual moment. As we think about uh, the depth of, of counseling, even in these four categories, I want to just remind us that uh, it is it is truth being communicated through the counselor uh that's that's helpful for for the person who whomever it is we're counseling um richard sibbs gets at this idea um you know to help us aim for depth in our counseling he says this in the bruise read light in the understanding produces heat of love in the affections light in the understanding produces heat of love in the affections in the measure that the sanctified understanding sees a thing to be true or good, in that measure, the will embraces it. Weak light produces weak inclinations. Strong light, strong inclinations. What we're trying to accomplish in counseling, as, as Sibs eloquently says here, is enlighten the mind. We're trying to help the heart believe what God has said is true and we're communicating truth, presenting truth to the counselee 
so that they respond in faith. And the reason we're aiming for depth in the truth that we communicate is, as Sibs mentions, it's to the degree that the sanctified understanding sees a thing to be true or good, right? Uh, you want the believer to experience, to understand, to see something to be glorious as God has communicated it to be so that his will will respond strongly to that same glorious truth that he's seen. Psalm 145 uh, communicates something of this idea. Psalm 145, verse 3, uh, a passage that I love. The psalmist there says, Great is the Lord, great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. What he's getting at there is that God in his character is great, great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised. So God ought to be praised in a way commensurate with his own inherent greatness. Great is Yahweh, therefore he ought to be greatly praised. And what kind of greatness are we talking about when we're talking about the greatness of Israel's infallible, covenant-keeping, gracious God? He says, and his greatness is unsearchable. The greatness that is inherent in God's nature is a greatness that cannot be fully fathomed, a greatness that cannot be completely searched out. And so as we communicate truth and as we point people back to God who is indescribably great, we want them to get a glimpse of that glory in our counseling. This is doxological counseling. We want them to get a glimpse of the greatness of God. So like Moses in Exodus 34 verse 8, they respond in worship. That when they get a glimpse of God's glory, they are compelled, if they believe the truth being communicated, to revere and fear and love and obey and cherish and treasure God. That's what we're aiming for in our counseling. And so this first category has to do with God's own greatness. Renewing the mind with thoughts of the greatness of God is itself a great tool for shepherding the heart. A clear view of God's greatness will inevitably deter us from sin and transform us more into Christ likeness. John Owen says it like this in a mortification, the mortification of sin. He says, be much in thoughtfulness of the excellency and of the majesty of God and thine infinite inconceivable distance from him. Many thoughts of it cannot but fill thee with a sense of thine own vileness, which strikes deep at the root of indwelling sin. When Job comes to a clear discovery of the greatness and excellency of God, he is filled with self-abhorrency and is pressed to humiliation. He counsels this, be much in thought, of this nature, be much in thoughts of this nature to abase the pride of thy heart and to keep thy soul humble within thee. There is nothing will create in thee 
a great indisposition to be imposed on by the deceits of sin, then such a frame of heart think greatly of the greatness of God. That's excellent counsel. And that's one of my favorite chapters in that book where he describes the sanctifying effects of considering the greatness of God. Something that Thomas Brooks counsels and Precious Remedies is this. There is nothing that will contribute so much to the keeping out of vain thoughts as to look upon God as an omniscient God, an omnipresent God, an omnipotent God, a God full of all glorious perfections, a God whose majesty, purity, and glory will not suffer him to behold the least iniquity. The reason why the blessed saints and glorious angels in heaven have not so much as one vain thought is because they are greatly affected with the greatness, holiness, majesty, purity, and glory of God. In our counseling, if we want to help sanctify our friends, the people that we have the opportunity to counsel, then we need to help them think well and often and greatly of the greatness of God. Some questions I have listed in each of these categories that ought to help us uh, get at this in our counseling, some thoughts to consider Uh, in this first category. God is worthy of my worship. Does the counselee understand that? That God is worthy of their worship and do they think of him as worthy of their worship? What am I not believing about God when I sin in this way? We should be helping our counselees identify that like Jeremiah did in chapter 2, verse 5 of Jeremiah. Uh, God says through him, what fault did your fathers find in me that they went after worthlessness and became worthless? God challenges the nation of Israel to identify the fault that they have found in God that has compelled them to go after idols. In our counseling, somebody is idolizing something, we should help them discern what their heart is saying about God, what they're not believing is about God in that moment that has compelled them to make something else worthy of their worship, uh, what other idol they've clung to. So yeah, the the third question, what must I be saying about God in my heart that I would sin in this way? How should God's, insert whatever attribute, sovereignty, love, grace, mercy, wrath, etc. How should God's attribute motivate me to obey him? How should God's, whatever attribute, give me hope to fight this sin? Question six, what about God's character should I be fearing? We need help considering that. What does this sin reveal that I am failing to fear about God? Am I thinking rightly about God's attributes? Question nine, are there characteristics of God that I am failing to consider? And finally, have I sufficiently meditated on God's greatness that my heart would be moved to to awe, praise, thanksgiving, rejoicing, and singing? That's helpful. And so those questions, as you have opportunity to to counsel others, be considering 
those types of, of, of things in your counseling. Category two, a good gospel. What, what I mean by this category, a good gospel, is a gospel that does two things. It saves and sanctifies. Saves and sanctifies. In our day, at this point in church history, we seem to have lost a grip on one of those truths. We love the gospel that justifies, and we, as a as an evangelical entity, if you will, have lost our our bearing on the sanctifying effects of the gospel. But Titus 2 says it, that it does both. It saves and instructs us to reject godliness, ungodliness, excuse me. Uh, and so the, the grace of God instructs and trains as well as saves. And so a gospel that does one and not the other is actually not a good gospel. If God were to rescue somebody from the penalty of sin and not the power of sin, that would not be a good gospel. What's the use of being rescued from the penalty, the ultimate penalty, and yet never having power to defeat sin that actually doesn't say something glorious or good about God at all? It says that God would not punish you for sin, from sin, but then leave you in sin so that there's no witness, no tangible witness to the world that God actually saves sinners. God has tied both of these things together in the gospel, in his plan, his design to save people. He has designed the gospel to rescue somebody from sin upon the moment of faith and to prove that rescue by resurrecting them, Paul says in Romans 6, to walk in newness of life. If we have died with Christ, then we have also been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. And so that is a good gospel, a gospel that rescues us from the penalty and power of sin. Both of those things need to be present in our counseling. As we communicate the gospel, we need to communicate the reassuring, comforting hope that there is no condemnation any longer in Christ Jesus for those who then walk according to the Spirit. So both are present there. Some questions in counseling to help us consider these things. Uh, number one, how is God's, again, insert a specific attribute, love, patience, holiness, grace, anger. How is that attribute, those attributes of God displayed in the gospel? That's helpful to reconsider in counseling. Again, uh, question two, what has Christ accomplished for me in the gospel? It's helpful to revisit. What does God say about my new identity in Christ can be helpful in counseling. Number four, how should the gospel shape my thinking in this situation? That is, how should the gospel that saves me and how should the gospel that brings me into submission to Christ shape my thinking in this situation? Number five, am I remembering God's complete forgiveness of this sin? Number six, am I willing to forsake this sin and submit to Christ's lordship? Those, that's a gospel issue. 
Number seven, what does an unwillingness to submit to Jesus imply about my profession of faith? Am I preaching half a gospel to my heart regarding this sin? Just the salvation or just the submission? Am I preaching half a gospel to my heart regarding this sin? Or am I remembering that the gospel calls me to both repent and believe? And then finally, what is the end of those who do love God? Excuse me, do not love God is what the what the outline should say. Uh, what is the end? What does scripture say is the end of those who do not love God? And that love for God being a tangible expression of love, not just a... Uh, verbal acknowledgement that yes I love God so that should say do not love God I'll correct that on the outline uh, on the web PDF uh, the, the the point of asking a question like that by the way what is the end of those who do not love God Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 22 if anyone does not love the Lord he is to be accursed, Maranatha. The warnings in scripture are as useful as the encouragements for the believer. Uh, Thomas Watson says it like this. He says the, the godly man uh, loves the threatenings of scripture as well. And so for the believer, uh, by them is your servant warned, David would say in Psalm 19. So we love the warnings of scripture because they are the means by which God uses to cause the person, the, the believer to persevere. So we shouldn't run from the warnings, uh, warning believers and reminding believers of what is true of those who persist in sin, because they are oftentimes the very means by which God loves to turn us away from sin to preserve our faith. The third category, a godly grief. It is a right to be grieved by those things that grieve God. Paul encourages this and even rejoiced over the grief of an entire church, referring to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So he was praising God that the Corinthians were grieved, not just because they were grieved, because they were sad, but that the grief that they had was a godly grief that produced repentance. And so we should seek for the same thing in our counseling. We shouldn't shy away from inquiring about the reasons a counseling may be grieved because we could be wrongly grieved. Judas was wrongly grieved. He was experiencing a worldly grief. And so grief in and of itself wasn't inherently pleasing to God, but his grief, like the grief of, of uh, all people that are grieved, needs to be a grief that results in the glory of God and that is for the glory of God. We ought to be grieved for the reasons that God says we ought to be grieved. And so we should rehearse truths that will prick our hearts to sorrow rightly over our failings to glorify God. Some questions to help us grieve rightly to have a, a godly grief. And, and if you haven't read 2 Corinthians 7, 
uh, it's particularly verses 9 through 11 in a while. I would encourage you to revisit that passage. Some questions to help us grieve rightly. Why is this sin sinful? I need to reconsider why is this sin sinful? What does committing this sin say that I believe about God in the moments that I commit this sin? Uh, what am I desiring most in those moments when I commit this sin? What does this sin reveal that I am valuing more than fellowship with God? Like we discussed, uh, already read in John fourteen twenty three, This sin, me not keeping God's word, is revealing a lack of love for God and is preventing further fellowship, intimacy with God. And therefore, I'm trading greater intimacy with God for this sin. What what is my heart saying that I want more than fellowship with God? What is it saying I love more than God? That will bring the believer's sin who's thinking rightly. Number five, why should I fear committing this sin? It is right to fear committing sin because God hates sin. Number six, how should or how would earnestness look in this situation from first, second Corinthians, excuse me, second Corinthians seven. How can I clear myself of this sin? Why should I hate this sin? Why should I fear God if I continue in this sin? Where must my fear of God increase so that I stop sinning in this way? Do I long to turn from this sinful practice? Why or why not? How should zeal for holiness manifest itself in my life? And then finally, what consequences of committing this sin must I be willing to endure? Being willing to endure the the punishment, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.11, is a sign of genuine repentance. And so that category having to do with godly grief we should be helping our friends and counselees uh, think rightly about what repentance entails and then lastly finally a glorious goal a glorious goal god's glory as we've already said is the goal of worship it is the end the goal of heart shepherding and we bring God glory when we rightly respond to everything that he said. That's, that's what worship is. All worship must be for some end. The worship of God must be for God, Stephen Charnack says. And so that's what we're after. This is the glorious goal of heart shepherding. Some questions to help us in our counsel instruct toward that goal revisiting with those that we're counseling why did God create me why did God create you what's your goal what's your end the end for which you exist as it just as a creature as a part of creation you the chair you're sitting in the tree outside the car you drove here you all exist for the same reason because you're a created being what is that Romans 11.36, Colossians 1.16 remind us of those things. For him, for God, for Jesus is why we exist. 
Number two, why did God save me? Beyond just being a creature, if you are a saved person, God has rescued you from the penalty of his own sin through Christ bearing that penalty in your place and resurrecting on your behalf for your justification. Why did God give up his dearest, most beloved possession, his own son, on your behalf to endure wrath in your place? John 17, 3 is the reason we have eternal life, to know God in Christ, i.e., glorify God. For Ephesians 1, 6, 1, 12, and 1, 14, to the praise of the glory of his grace, for praise, for worship of God is why we have been even saved by God. We need to remind each other of those things in our counsel. Do I believe that God will receive his due glory from my fight against this sin? To remember that God will be glorified by my endurance and continually fighting this sin will motivate, ought to motivate and move our hearts to further uh, endure in our fight against sin. Number four, am I using God's means of grace? That is Bible intake, prayer, serving, fellowship, ordinances, etc. All of the opportunities and ways that God intends to sanctify me. Am I using those means for some end other than God's glory? Right? For to benefit in some carnal way, some practical way. And I'm not actively thinking about the glory of God. I need to be reminded that the goal of those means is God's glory. And then finally, what am I requiring God to give me that I must have in order to be content can be helpful. Because anybody who's demanding something else on top of God being glorified does not have the glory of God as their ultimate end. If I'm saying, hey, God, you being glorified is great, but I also am requiring X in this situation for me to be satisfied. Well, the truth is that other thing that I'm requiring, if I'm attaching it to God's glory, then that's my God. That's my ultimate love. Uh, And in the uh, other side of that question, number six, I would be satisfied with life if fill in the blank, whatever goes in that blank is uh, what I'm not content having alongside God's glory. And so that ought to help us refine our motives. The, uh, the next audio that I'll include separate from this final lesson is a teaching on the box diagram. And so beside this lesson, if you found this helpful, then you can also revisit the second audio included with this on how to utilize a really practical tool called the box diagram. It's a heart shepherding tool. Um, Check that out as well. Thanks for listening.